In Ephesians 5, it's talking about relationships. God made relationships. And life is made meaningful by our relationships. And the most meaningful of which is that is between a man and a woman in marriage. But as you know, often the fulfillment of that particular relationship is elusive for a lot of people. And a marriage that continually gets better and more satisfying is actually something very rare today. But what's the problem? Well, part of the problem is we live in a fallen world. We live in a sin-cursed world where nothing is as perfect as we would like it. And, of course, marriage, by its very nature, opens us up to deep hurts. We are incredibly vulnerable in marriage. And we are, therefore, disappointed and and hurt by its failures. However, please don't do what some people do and blame God for that. (laughs) Okay, it's not His fault. The chief problem is we've actually forgotten God's guidelines and His... And, and we've ignored his blueprints and plans for marriage. And as a result, we suffer in our marriages, and uh, a lot of marriages suffer breakdowns, break, breakdown, sorry, just as you might suffer a breakdown with your automobile if you disregard the manufacturer's instructions for its maintenance, right? Just talk to Andrew. Right? What, what happens when the instruction manual for your car says change your oil every so few kilometers and you just ignore that? What do you think is eventually going to happen to your car? Bad idea, by the way. Don't do that. Because eventually it's going to break down and stop working. Or you, you just say, well, I don't want to change the transmission fluid. You know, I don't want to spend that money. And you just keep driving and driving and driving. Eventually you can say goodbye to your transmission. Or, or you say, well, I, I don't need to pay for new brakes. You know, I'm just going to keep driving, ignore the brakes. Yeah, well, you're, you're asking for trouble, right? If you ignore the manufacturer's instructions. And, and it's the same in our marriages. It's the same in the family. You ignore the manufacturer's instructions to your own peril. God's given us that right here in the Bible. And so the place to begin in any discussion of marriage is with the fact that Marriage is not man's idea, it's actually God's idea. He's the one who came up with it, and because of that, it is a good idea. It's a good idea because it comes from God, and God has never had a bad idea in his entire life. Never. And so let me remind you of the creation account in Genesis, where marriage is first established and described for us. You read Genesis chapters 1 and 2, you can read about the first institution of marriage there. But up to that point, God, let me just remind you, He's been calling each of His creative acts good. But when He looked at a man who is alone, for the first time ever, He says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And the one thing in all of creation that was not good in God's judgment was that Man was alone. Man in his aloneness was not good. Without a woman, he was incomplete. So God's creation of the woman was the completion and the perfection of his creative acts there. And so marriage was 
the great good, if you will, that topped off his creation. And so it follows then, you think, think through the logic here, that marriage is a good thing. God created it. So regardless of what we in society make of it, and, and regardless of the fact that, that marriages fail, it's still a good thing. So regardless of what we make of it and, and the, uh, the failed marriages, which, of course, we see all around us and, and it seems to just be increasing, the result of our failures, not God's failures. All right? So just because something's failing doesn't mean it's a bad idea. Right? I hope you understand that. And so here in Ephesians 5, the, the end, of, end of this glorious chapter here, the Apostle Paul, may I remind you, in the context, he's continuing describing for us what is the, uh, the godly and moral life of the believer who is controlled by the Holy Spirit. So the one who is controlled by the Holy Spirit is going to be mutually submissive in the various relationships of life. And in this case, today we're going to look at the role of the husband. Uh, God actually says more to the husband in this passage here than he does to the wife. And next week we'll look at the wife, the role of the wife, that is. So let's start reading in Ephesians 5, verse 22. Ephesians 5, 22 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. By the way, those of you who are single, please don't turn the Bible off here. <laughs> Don't turn God out here. Because even if you happen to have the gift of singleness, which is not for most people, but even if you did, and you are currently single, one day you might be married. And you need to understand what God is saying here. Because He is giving you the manufacturer's instructions. This is the blueprint. This is the plan. And so, ladies, this is the kind of man you ought to be praying for. This is the kind of man you ought to be waiting for longing for. This is a godly man presented here in this passage. And men, if you are single by any chance, then this is the man you need to be so that you can have a godly wife. So so even if you're not married, there's applicability here for you. So Ezra, this is for you, buddy. Right? 
if you want to have you want to have a godly relationship, a godly marriage, this is the man you need to be. This is what it, this is what manhood looks like right here. Okay? So here's the proposition. Two things, two roles that God gives us here in this text that God wants husbands to lead and love their wives. That's what God wants you to do. He wants you to lead and love your wife. So those are the two roles, and sorry, I messed up the outline and left out one word, so sorry, and I did it on the PowerPoint. It shows you I am not infallible. I am fallible, that's for certain. And so the first role we see here is that the husband is to be his wife's leader. He is to be his wife's leader. And that's what it means there in verse 23 when it says that the husband is the head of the wife. The head is, well, it has a lot of false ideas, so let me tell you what a headship does not mean. I'm going to give you two pendulum swings here. Right, the the two pendulum extremes are, are sorry, they are the extremes that we must uh, avoid as men, ladies. These are the things you don't want in your man, and uh, you, please pray for these. Okay, but here's number one: the head cannot mean passivity. It can't mean passivity. And so when Paul says that Christ is the head of the church, then you know that term is really important. <laughs> it can't mean nothing. And there are people out there saying it means nothing. Well, that's one way of just kind of sweeping things under the rug. If you just make it nothing, then it's not important. But that can't mean that. You can't use this passage here to advocate passivity. If you do, then what you're actually doing is you're actually abandoning your biblical role. So abdication of responsibility is something that's very common today. So the, the feminists, uh, in many ways, have got what they wanted, and many of them don't like what they got. But anyway, that's a whole other message. But be aware of the pendulum swings here. Here's one of them, passivity. It's passivity. And, and by the way, both of the pendulum swings are wrong, and so, so it can't mean passivity. It has to be something but it can't be the other pendulum swing. Head cannot mean domination. And so some people have used that term there to justify their sin of abuse. See, my friends, headship does not connote a spiritual or personal superiority for husbands in, in the sense that it grants them this right for them to be selfish and, and proud in their rule over their wife. That's what some people do with a passage like this. And so this should be clear in the context. Uh, in light of that command there in verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives. That's imperative in the Greek. It's not an option. Husbands, love your wives. See, my friends, nowhere does God in the Bible ever define love as go ahead and take advantage of someone to, to your personal gain. That's not love. So headship is not lording one's position or their power over another person for your personal gain. That is not love. So it can't mean passivity. It can't mean domination. So you say, okay, what is this headship here? What does it mean 
in verse 23 when it says that the husband is the head of the wife. Glad you asked. So what does headship mean? Number one, it means the head of the family here is a servant. Yes, husbands are the head of the family. And it means that you are the biggest servant, and I don't mean size or weight, or muscles or anything like that. That's not what it's talking about. You are the biggest servant in the family. That's what it means to be a head. And so the concern here is not for the husband himself. His concern is not to just bark out orders or boss other people around. The idea isn't you just get your own way in everything. The concern here is husbands are to meet the needs of his family. And if you're not willing to sacrifice your needs, your wants and desires, then you're not actually qualified to lead. You're not qualified to lead because a leader is a servant. And that's why we read in John 13 the the great example there of our Lord Jesus Christ who was the great servant. He came to serve. He gave His life. And so Jesus gives us that picture of leadership in John 13, and it's a beautiful picture. But notice, uh, as we read that earlier in John 13, the emblem of leadership there is not some big, awesome, mighty throne. You, you do see that in other places, but not there. It's not a club. It's not a weapon. That's not the emblem. In fact, what do you see? You see a towel in a bowl. That's the emblem of leadership. And so, with that emblem, that's one reason I appreciated the, uh, the, the seminary I went to where I got my master's degree from. They... They gave, at, at graduation, I thought at the time I was like, hmm, that's, that's interesting, that's unique. Because at graduation they gave us a towel. And on the towel, I'll, I'll never forget this, on the towel it says, be great, serve. Where do you think they got that from? Be great, serve. I don't know what happened to that towel. I miss it. Probably got lost in moving, as a lot of things have. But anyway, the the emblem of leadership is a towel in a bowl. Jesus took the form of a servant in washing feet. So a leader must have a servant's heart in order to do that sort of thing. And if he does, then he's going to act like a servant. He's also going to react like a servant when other people actually treat him like a servant. And those of us who are, who are husbands and have children, we know what it's like to be treated as servants. Yeah, we could talk a long time about that. And so the head of the family is a servant, but it, it, it's more than that. See, the head of the family is also a leader. I know, it seems a bit of like an oxymoron there, but see, head also means leader. And so husbands, remember, you are like... To be like the Lord Jesus Christ, you are to be a good example. Be a godly model to your wife, to your children, to everybody of what it means to be a servant and a leader. But don't abdicate your authority, your God-given authority, because being a leader also means you have to make decisions. May I suggest, by the way, you consult your wives. Your Sorry, you should only, that came across wrong. You should only have one wife. Um, 
So consult your wife. I didn't mean to say it that way. Uh, you should only have one wife. You should be consulting her. She should be your best consultant, your best advocate there. And may I also say that a uh, 50-50 relationship here doesn't work. It doesn't work. There is no such thing as 50-50. <laughs> It'll never work. right? God's given a, a greater authority, if you will, to the husband. But may I also recommend that you delegate responsibilities in your house, in your home. Be a delegator. See, you're not God. And some guys try to take it all on, and then they just succumb to the weight, and they get squashed in the process because you're not God. You can't do it all, so don't try to do it all. And so if you were to summarize the two ideas of headship here, what you have is a servant leader. A servant leader is what it means to be the head. That's the way Jesus was. And he is our example, isn't he? But there's a second role uh, we as husbands are to take on here. We see, number two, that the husband is to be his wife's lover. The husband is to be his wife's lover. So what does it mean for husbands to love their wives? Notice the qualifying statement here, as Christ loved the church. Because that's the command in verse 25, love your wives. And it's a continuous command. You're to keep doing this all the time for your whole life. It's not an option. It's a command. So what are these qualities of love here? What can we learn from Christ? Well, the Lord gives us a pattern of love for the church, and that is to be the husband's pattern of love for his wife. And so Paul actually mentions some various qualities of divine love here that husbands are to show to their wives, and these are convicting. All right? None of us have arrived. None of us are Jesus Christ. Okay, And so that's why my, my toes are really flat. I, I've, I've been reading this a lot recently, more than you have, I'm sure. And uh, I got really flat toes, and so, I, and so I should. I haven't arrived, and neither have you. But this is the, 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 the manufacturer's instructions for us, if you will, okay? These are what we need to follow and live. So number one, as we think about you're to be your wife's lover, what, what does that look like? Well, number one, the husband's love is to be sacrificial. It's to be sacrificial because, notice, husbands love your wife. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So, some 2,000 years ago, roughly, when, when Christ came to earth in human form, well, what did he receive? The creator of the universe humbled himself, according to Philippians 2, came in the form of a man. <laughs> wow. Well, he knew when he, he, he would come, he knew he was going to be mocked and ridiculed and scorned and maligned and rejected and, and beaten and eventually crucified. What did he give up? Well, he gave up the prerogatives as God's son. He sacrificed not for people who were lovely, not for those who were worthy of his love, but he sacrificed for those who were unlovely and unworthy. And I'm talking about me and you, us. So what is the world's love like? Well, the world's love is always object-oriented, right? You read a novel, you, you look at a movie, or, or so forth, 
a person is loved because of their physical attractiveness or it's something about their personality you know you know some woman might say well he makes me laugh or whatever it is okay or they're 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 intelligent witty and uh, maybe it's their wealth or their prestige or some other positive characteristic that is attractive to that individual. But the point is, it's always object-oriented when it comes to the world. In other words, the, wor- the world loves those whom it believes is worthy of love. But God's love is not like that. And, and it's interesting, in, in the text here, the word for love is that, that agape type of a love. That's the, the unconditional love of sacrifice and giving that God is known for. And so God calls us to be like Him in this way. He is love. We're to be love here as well, or to love. And so a husband is not to love his wife because she's attractive or witty or wealthy or whatever you want to fill in the blank. He's, he is commanded to love her because it's God's will for him to love her. I know, that doesn't sound very romantic, does it? (laughs) But do you understand what that means? It means that if every appealing characteristic and every virtue of your wife disappears, and you don't even have any feelings for her anymore, you're still supposed to obey this command. So that means if your wife gets dementia, and her brain disappears, you're still supposed to love her. Or if, you know, if the beauty changes, and, you know, and the wrinkles start sagging, and the hair goes gray, and, you know, everything is changing, as it always does. You can even try the Botox, and hair dyes, and all that sort of stuff, but you're changing. I'm changing. But the point is, even when that stuff changes, and it could all go you're still supposed to love your wife. You're an un, you are under obligation to love her. So let's just get practical for a moment, guys. Okay? And if the shoe doesn't fit here, don't ruin the illustration. Okay? Let's just get practical, okay? Now, now men, suppose you, you come home from work and you're all tired after a busy, hard day at work. And, and, and you're like a lot of guys who, who come home and, and when you're tired, you just want to plop in your lazy boy cheer, you know, read the news, uh, maybe watch some television or, or surf the internet. That, that's your downtime or whatever your downtime is, okay? But let's say your wife has some other ideas for you. That never happens, right? And uh, let's say your wife actually wants to talk to you instead of leave you alone. And, uh, and, and <clears throat> or, or maybe, maybe it's something else, okay? Maybe your wife doesn't want to leave you alone and actually wants you to go out with her. That means into town and uh, maybe get something to eat and then do a little bit of shopping. And by the way, here's the kicker. She actually wants you to go with her. She actually wants you to go shopping with her. And at that point, some guys run for the hills. I know, some guys don't like retail therapy. And so, what do you have to do in that situation, man? You actually have to deny yourself and do what she wants. And in the process, what are you doing? You're screaming and yelling, 
I love you. Especially when you do something you don't want to do. Okay? So there, that's just one way you could, you could kind of get practical. For some men, that, that is the ultimate sacrifice. Right? To get out of the lazy boy chair and go shopping with their wife. Right? I know, some are laughing already. Right? So number one, the husband's love is to be sacrificial. And no, no, notice number two, the husband's love is to be purifying. It's to have an effect, in other words. It's purifying. Because verse 26 says, notice the word that... So, so here comes a purpose statement. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So the husband's loves to be purifying. So, so divine love does not simply condemn wrong in those loved, but what is it doing here? It seeks to cleanse them from their sin. Of course, only God can ultimately forgive their sin, but, but Christ's love for His church does not allow Him to be content with any sin. God can't overlook sin. And so, when is sin forgiven? Well, a believer... In Christ is forgiven. Every sin, the moment of their salvation, when when you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, your sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven. And so as we continue to confess our sins, the Bible says that, that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise God! And so, what's the agent of that sanctification? Well, the, the, the agent is the Word of God. The Word of God is, is sanctifying us, as Jesus said in John chapter 17. And it's interesting, as I was studying this, in ancient Greece, a bride-to-be would... You might find this weird. Are you ready? A bride-to-be would actually be taken down to the river and bathed. She would be bathed, and, and they would have this big ceremony where she would be cleansed of every defilement of her past life. <laughs> so whatever her life had been before, it was symbolically purified through the bathing in the river. <laughs> I found that interesting. And then as a result of that, she would enter into marriage with, with any moral or uh, social blemishes gone, taken away, and, and, and the past would be washed away symbolically. And so that's the language here. And and actually a greater way, far greater way, Jesus Christ gave himself up for his bride. But however, the cleansing of believers here is, it's not something that's ceremonial. It's not symbolic. It's something that's actually real, and it's something that was completed. What does the analogy mean, though? Well, the truth in the analogy here is, that God's saving grace makes believers holy. It makes them clean to this cleansing agency here of the Word of God so that we can then be presented to the groom as a pure bride. So that's the comparison to our marriages. Our marriages are to be purifying. Number three, 
The husband's love is to be affectionately caring. The husband's love is to be affectionately caring. To what extent, though? You know, how far do you take this? Well, to the extent that he cares as much for her welfare as he does for the welfare of his own body. How many of you men purposely destroy your body and neglect it all the time? No, you don't. You don't do that. See, we, we have this, this false idea of self-esteem proclaimed today, which is unbiblical. The reality is everybody loves themselves. And that's why God says, hey guys, love your wife as you love yourself. Because God knows everybody loves themselves. Right? How do we show that? <laughs> In all kinds of ways, right? We're concerned about our own bodies. Right? I, I, and I've, in the last few days, I've, I've shown I love my body because I've been drinking water. I've been stuffing food in my mouth. You know, and I've been taking showers. And I've been, you know, trying to get, uh, you know, my, my muscles massaged from, you know, all the hard work I'm doing. And I try to sleep in a comfortable bed. And I actually try to get some decent sleep at night, right? These are all various ways that I'm showing this. There's a lot of money that's spent even on men in decorating our bodies, protecting them, enhancing and comfort and, and, and the display, right? We spend money on clothes. And, and these are all various things we do to show we love ourselves. And God says, just as you love yourself, you're to love your wife. And what does this caring look like? Well, men, it means that when your wife needs strength, give her strength. It means when she needs encouragement, give her encouragement. When she needs love, give her love. When she needs support, give her support. Right? That's what you would do to yourself. <laughs> and so the blessed marriage here is the marriage in which the husband loves his wife with unlimited care. Something's basically wrong if you look at her as only a cook. Or if you only look at your wife as a housekeeper. Or if you only look at her as an occasional companion, or if she's only your sex partner. There's a problem with that view. She's far more than that. She is a God-given treasure that is to be loved, cared for, nurtured, and cherished. That's the idea here in this language that, that, that we see here from verses 28 through 30. Wow. I mean, it's in the same way it says in verse 28. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. So he who loves his wife loves himself. Because God says, nobody ever hated himself. No one ever has done that. But what do we do? We nourish, cherish. That's what we're to do. So to nourish a wife, by the way, it means you provide for her needs, whatever they are. You, you give her help. You help her grow. You help her mature in favor with God and man. And so to cherish her is to use tender love, uh, a, a physical affection. It's, it's giving her comfort and warmth and protection and security, all those great things. So let me just give you a, a few suggestions here of how, men, you might love your wife. Ladies, these are things you can pray for. All right? Here's, here's how you can love your wife. Number one, actually say it. 
Some guys have a hard time doing that. I mean, the joke is, you know, uh, the one guy said, well, if I change my mind, I'll tell you. Right? You know, I said it at the altar, and if I ever change my mind, I'll tell you I've changed my mind. So, of course I love you. Right? Say it often, passionately, consistently. And you're to be a provider. That's that Biblical manhood, guys, is means you're a provider. You're not to be passive, you're to be a provider. That means you provide for her physical needs. You provide for her emotional needs, her intellectual needs, her social needs, her sexual needs. She might even have recreational needs. And of course she has spiritual needs. You're to be the total provider in all those areas. And you are not a good provider if you're not concerned about all of those things. You might be good at one of those, and you might be bad at another one. But you need to strive to be good at all of those. But you're also not just a provider, you're a protector. And so the demands of children are very hard. Well, it's hard on all people, but uh, particularly a mother at times, can be destroyed by her children. Mothers can have bad days, just like children have bad days. <laughs> and so the criticisms of others might actually overwhelm her, or uh, maybe maybe there's unrealistic expectations. Oh, we've had that one in our house. You, you, we, you, there's unrealistic expectations coming from outside the home, and so it just it's, it's crushed my wife before. I've had to jump in and help. Assist in the responsibilities. Guys, did you know it's actually manly to clean your house? It's manly to have dishpan hands. It's manly to change a nappy. It reminds me of, my, my brother can be very funny at sometimes. He sent me a photo one day where he was changing a nappy with a gas mask on. Because nappies are smelly. I've changed a few in my lifetime. Probably not enough. I'm sure not enough. And men, did you know it's manly to go shopping with your wife? In fact, if you, if you find retail therapy incredibly painful, that might, that might be the most manly thing you ever do. Just think about that. But you also need to share your life with your wife. Does she know your inner feelings? Does she know your hopes, your, your dreams? Does she know anything about you? <laughs> Some guys are like closed books, right? They don't want to open up. Some wives feel like they're living with a stranger. It's not a husband, it's a roommate, a flatmate. It shouldn't be that way. I mean, this whole one flesh union the Bible talks about is, is a total package. And the other thing, man, you need to give your wife second place. I know that comes across as weird. You, you might have expected me to say first, right? But those of you who actually know what God's will for your life is, you know God has first place, and your wife gets second. So Christ, of course, would be first, but she needs to know that she's coming before your job or your work, or she comes before the children, she comes before your house, she comes before your car or your boat, or you're golfing. Right? If your wife says, hey, dear, let's go shopping, you say, sorry, I'm, 
I, I got I got a uh, yeah, I gotta go out with the mates, we're golfing. How do you think that's gonna make her feel? Or other hobbies, whatever those might be. Delight in your wife. And be chivalrous. I know that's a dying thing. But men, we, we need to speak gently and respectfully. It's hard to do at times, especially if you're tired and you're grumpy, right? Really hard to be godly when you're tired and grumpy. And you have headaches and whatever else is going on. And the children have been, you know, really naughty. And we need to be gentlemen. Treat her as a valuable jewel. Don't treat her like rubbish. Another thing is give affirmation generously. Uh, Say thank you. Say what you appreciate. Talk about that a lot. Express your appreciation for all the little things that she does and says and so forth, right? Make a list of, you know, here, here's an assignment for you guys. Uh, I learned this from my wife because on my birthday she gave me a book. Like every day through the year she, she gave me affirmation for something different. And it's been really encouraging. So here you go. Make a list of 100 things that you appreciate about your wife. It might be challenging, but it will be a blessing to her. Number four, moving on. What what is a husband's love supposed to be like? Well, the husband's love is to be unbreakable. Unbreakable. Look what verse 31 says. It says, going back to Genesis 2, that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Hold fast there is the idea of being glued together. In fact, don't we even have a a brand name of glue called Holdfast? You're to be glued to your wife. It's to be unbreakable. And one of the greatest barriers to a successful marriage is the failure of one or both of the spouses to leave father and mother. You know, the, the, in marriage, a new family is actually begun, and the relationships of that former family are to be severed as far as the authority goes, as far as the responsibilities go. In fact, we even took a, a funny photo at our, at our uh, wedding ceremony. I, I love this photo even today. There's, <clears throat> there's Lori sitting in the middle. My father-in-law is on one side, and then I'm on the other side. And my father-in-law is handing over his credit card, and then Lori's handing over, am I getting this right? No, 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 okay, you're giving giving my father-in-law's credit card back, and then you're receiving my credit card. It's a funny photo. (laughs) It it was kind of a symbolic transition in, in responsibilities and authority. And praise God, I have good in-laws. They, they recognize there's this, this leaving and cleaving going on. We, we, I don't have in-law jokes, fortunately. Parents are always to be loved and cared for, of course, but they're no longer to control the lives of their children once they're married. They are their own family unit. And the word leave or cleave there literally means you're glued, you are cemented together, it is to be an unbreakable bond. And so husbands and wives are to leave their parents, they are to cleave to, be cemented to each other. 
They're to break one set of ties as they're establishing another set of ties. And that's the way God designed it. So you say, well, there's a lot of divorce going on in our culture. Yeah, I know. I know. They've ignored God's plan, his blueprint, and his instructions and to their own peril. So what is, you say, well, what does God think about divorce? Well, he hasn't changed his mind. God can't change his mind. Because in Malachi chapter 2, God says, I hate divorce. I hate divorce. That's what he said to Israel. And so God has always hated divorce. And he will continue to hate it because of, of this primary reason. It actually destroys the very thing that he ordained to be unbreakable. Because remember, what does the marriage point to? It points to the greater, longer-lasting relationship that, that the groom has with his bride. And of course, Christ would never divorce his bride. Never. He can't. So, he hates divorce on any terms and for any reason. He's not going to tolerate it in certain instances. He will never forgive it as he will forgive other sins. But he, um, he will never change his hatred for divorce. He can't. It's to be unbreakable. So husbands and wives are not to be quick to divorce each other just because of uh, wrongs or sins that may have done in the marriage. And by the way, not even for unfaithfulness. Praise God. I have a friend who uh, who was unfaithful to his wife before he was saved. And, and God used that whole thing in his life. He did become a Christian, and they're still married today. So even the fact that he was unfaithful to his wife, God has, has kept them together, and, and they seem to have a, a great relationship even today. But just as Christ does not separate himself from believers who sin against him. Well, husbands and wives aren't to separate themselves from their spouse who may have sinned against them. So as Christ is always forgiving of believers, then husbands and wives should always be forgiving each other. That's the way it should be. And then number five, the husband's love is to be motivated. And it's to be motivated by a proper motivation. Notice in verses 32 and 33, it talks about this mystery, right? And the mystery is profound, verse 32 says. And of course, God explains the mystery of, of a physical marriage is pointing to the greater marriage between Christ and His church. And so the answer is, is right there in the mystery. The, the proper motivations in that mystery, you say, what's the mystery? We, well, a mystery is just something that was unknown to believers in the Old Testament that has been revealed to us now in the New Testament. And so marriage is a picture of the church and the relationship to Jesus Christ. And so he is, of course, the groom. God's people are the bride. And so therefore, Christian marriage is to be something that's loving. It's supposed to be purifying. It's supposed to be self-sacrificing. It is something that's supposed to be mutually submissive. Because... Those virtues characterize the relationship of Christ and the church. In other words, the proper motive for loving my wife is ultimately because I love Christ. Because I love Christ, right? Is the ultimate motivation for loving my wife. And it should be the same for you. 
I want to end with a, a biblical illustration. That's, it's a beautiful picture. I, I hope you're familiar with this. But in the Old Testament, we're actually told of the marriage of one of God's prophets. A, a, not a very well-known prophet, but his name was Hosea. And God told Hosea to marry a woman named Gomer. And uh, uh, right from the beginning, God told him to do this because it was supposed to be an illustration to Israel of the way God loves and gives himself for his people. Despite the fact that his people were unfaithful to him, Israel was often unfaithful to God. And so this was a vivid illustration to Israel of God's love for his wife, if you will. And so Gomer was exactly like us. She, she did marry Hosea, but she was an ungodly woman, to say the least. She was flirtatious. She, she soon left Hosea for another man. And Hosea made sure that she had everything she needed. She had food and clothes to wear. And, and, and despite all of that, in, in loving her and taking care of her needs, she ended up living with another man. She was unfaithful to Hosea. But at last, Gomer sank so low that she was eventually sold as a slave there in the city of Samaria. And Hosea was told by God to go and buy her. How low can you get? Go and buy your wife who's who's been unfaithful and now a slave? Poor guy. And the Bible says in Hosea that he bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer of barley. (laughs) And so at that point, Gomer actually becomes Hosea's property. He could have actually killed her. He had the right to do that in in that society, in that culture, in that day. He could have killed her, but he didn't do that. He didn't kill her. Instead, he loved her. And now, since she was his again, he promised love for her. He claimed her as his own because he loved himself. And this was a great picture to Israel and and, uh, how God loves his people. And so that's a, a glorious picture of the way that even our Lord Jesus Christ himself loves us and of how our marriages then are to illustrate that great and prior relationship. We are that adulterous wife. We are the adulterous slave who is sold on the auction block of sin. Christ loved us, gave himself for us. He loved us while we were yet sinners. And he died for us when we were scorning his love. He died for us and loved us when we were running away from him. And still he bought us by the greatest of all sacrifices, and we became his. That's what Peter, the Apostle Peter, says when he says, my friends, you were redeemed. In other words, you were bought off the slave market. You were redeemed with what? With the precious blood of Christ. A lamb without blemish or defect. And so, we became his. And having become His, we now owe Him the fullest measure of love then, don't we? And so because you love Christ, hopefully you do, hopefully you love Him with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, your entire being, then what's the natural response? Well, according to this context, you love your wife. 
But let me remind you what the what one of the hymns in our hymn book says. Love so amazing, so divine. What, what's, what does it do? What's the result? It demands my soul, my life, my all. That's appropriate. And by God's grace, it, may He enable us to have that type of a response. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for uh, Your great example and, and Your great love. And even though we were sinners and we were against You and rebellious and unfaithful, You sought us out. You bought us from the slave market of sin. Thank You for doing for us which we could never do for ourselves. Thank You for loving the unlovely and the unworthy. What a great picture we see here. And so may our marriages accurately reflect the ultimate relationship. Forgive us for our sin, for our shortcomings, for not loving our wives as we even love ourselves, let alone loving our wives as Christ loved the church. We have a high bar, a high standard set there. But nevertheless, may that be the goal. May that be what we strive for. Would you enable us to just show a little bit of love at least and do it for the right motivation, glorifying you in the process. So, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.